Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build up a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you, take an iron griddle, and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of day, the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and your, with your arm bared, you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place, place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other, till you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel, and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you shall eat, that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hin. From day to day you shall drink, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Now, we're going to take a look at the meaning. We, we, we were dealt with this passage last time we were together, but we're going to continue on in this section tonight and look at the meaning of the 390 days and the 40 days of Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, there has been much, much debate, as, and it still continues to this day, over the meaning of the 390 days and the 40 days that Ezekiel was to prophesy about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, in order to deal with this, we need to take our time and work our way through this. And what I want you to see first and foremost is, go back to Ezekiel chapter 4, look at verses 5 and 6. We know at least this much, each day that Ezekiel was to lay on his side represented a year. We see here in Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment, so long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you com have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. So here we see that Ezekiel is to lay down on his side, on his left side first for 390 days, representing 390 years of, of the northern kingdom's punishment. And then he's to lay over on his right side for 40 days, facing the other direction, to represent the 40 years of Judah, is Judah's punishment. Now, 
As we're about to get into this, if any of you have tried to research and do a little study to find out what the 390 days and 40 days or 390 years and 40 years represent, you're, you have found that this is an area where nobody agrees. You have to, you'd be hard pressed to find any two Bible teachers that see the same thing. And I'm going to tell you, I have spent more time digging into this passage of Scripture probably than any other passage of Scripture that I've dug into for a set period of time in my entire life. I actually kept track. I spent 15 hours just on 390 days in the 40 days, digging and researching. And I'm going to give you a heads up now. I don't have an answer either. Exactly. 390 days and 40 years after that, then I'll be able to maybe tell you. But I want to walk you through some things and show you some of the things. If you want to do some research on your own, you can do so. But let me just tell you, this is, well, the Greek word is, a, it's a boogaboo. All right. This is a tough one. This is a hard one. All right. So first and foremost, a question I'm always asked is, did Ezekiel actually lay on one side for 390 days? Yes, but not 390 days straight. It was a period of each day he was to do this. And he was doing it as a picture of the judgment that was coming on, these nation, on the nation of Israel, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. As you look at the context, you'll see that he has to prepare his bread and prepare it each day and set up a certain measure for each day of bread and of water. You can't do that in one day and then let it set for 390 days. It was going to be a process. So he's laying on his side. You've got to use the restroom too, don't you? You know, I mean, he didn't stay on one side for 390 days period, you know, rigor mortis would set in. But God's having him do this for a reason. So he needed, well, he needed fuel for the cooking of the food, which we'll get to later on. So, but what I want to do is I want to show you God's done something similar to this in the past. You see, he said, I'm going to have you lay on your side for 390 days, which represents 390 years of judgment. 40 days, which represents 40 years of punishment. Go back with me to Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to take you back to when the nation of Israel was to go into the promised land in Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 through 33. They, they, put, they assigned some spies to go into the land. Remember how God said, I've got this land for you? Well, they decided they'd put a committee together to research it. Instead of being obedient to God, they're committee went and spied out the land. And look at verse 25. At the end of how many days did they go spy out the land? Forty days they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, which means giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone out to spy out, it is the land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it were of great height. 
And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. So that was their report. After spying it out for 40 days, they came back and said, yeah, everything God said about the blessings of the land, but there's no way we can do this because they're just too big for us. Now jump over to chapter 14 and look at verses 26 through 34. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census, from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that that would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." So here God says, you were in there 40 days spying it out. I'm going to give you a year of suffering for each of those days. Ezekiel is told to lie down on, for 390 days, representing a day for each year of their punishment. Now, going back to Ezekiel uh, chapter 4, another problem we have with this passage is the word that's translated here in the ESV in verses 4 and following. It's translated punishment in our translation here in the ESV. Some of your translations will say iniquity, correct? Now, the word translated iniquity or punishment is actually a Hebrew word that has four different translations. And if you put them all together, they pretty much mean a punishment for sin. The iniquity is sin in and of itself, but the word iniquity also means a punishment for sin, a judgment because of that sin. That's why sometimes it's translated punishment, other times it's just translated iniquity. But because it's been translated in some translations iniquity and other translations punishment, there's been confusion now as to whether or not the 390 days, also meaning 390 years, represents Ezekiel laying on his side as a picture of 390 years of past sin, and then laying on his other side for 40 days, representing 40 years of past sin. You see, because if you translate it iniquity, because of their iniquity, it sounds like he's going to lay on his side representative of 390 years of past sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because of their iniquity. If it's translated punishment, people think it's future because it's coming. And that's been part of the conundrum and the part of the problem. Now, some say that Ezekiel's delay on his side for 390 days to represent Israel's 390 years, the northern kingdom's 390 years of past iniquity, and then on his other side to represent 40 years of Judah's past iniquity. But be honest with you folks, there's a few problems we have within that interpretation. One of them is this. Was the northern kingdom that much more wicked than the southern kingdom, Judah? I mean, if he's to lay on his side for 390 days, representing 390 years of the northern kingdom Israel's iniquity, and to lay on his side for 40 days, representing the 40 years of Judah's iniquity, was Israel, the northern kingdom, that much more wicked than Judah? Very good. She said, no, in fact, the Bible actually says that Judah was worse. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Ezekiel chapter 23. 
In Ezekiel chapter 23, look at verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed in their virgin bosoms handled. Ahola was the name of the elder, and Aholiba the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ohola is Samaria, and Aholiba is Jerusalem. Do you see it? It's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ahola played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrian warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them and the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone of whom she lusted. Now let me explain. When he's using these terms, he's using the term of sexual immorality, but it's simply the nation... The northern kingdom worshipped those gods of the Assyrians and the people, the nations around them. And how does God see it when we worship anything that's not Him? He sees it as sexual impurity. You remember that from our study in Revelation when we get to chapter 17 and 18. And so when He's talking about this, He's using sexual language, but He's talking about the fact that they were worshipping the false gods of the nations around them. All right? Verse 8, She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness, they seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her, they killed her with the sword, and she became a byword among women, when judgment had been executed on her. Her sister, Aholiba, saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. So here, according to Ezekiel, chapter 23, Judah was worse than the northern kingdom of Israel. Go with me to the book of Jeremiah. Look at chapter 3 in verses 6 through 11. Chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? This is the northern kingdom. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithful, faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So if we're going to say that the 390 years represents Israel, the northern kingdom's past sin, and the 40 years represents Judah's past sin, that's like saying that the northern kingdom was way, way, way worse than the southern kingdom, and scripturally, the Bible says it's the opposite. On top of that, if Israel and Judah had been unfaithful to God for 390 years or 40 years, when did it begin? And when did it end? I mean, if you know anything about the scriptures, when can you begin the 390 years? If, 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 if Ezekiel's laying on his side for 390 days is representative of past sins, 390 years of past sins, when did it begin and when did it end? By the way, 
for those that love to figure out mysteries and solve Sudoku puzzles and all that kind of stuff, those of you that have those kind of brains, the crossword puzzle people, uh, the word finds, those are the kind of people that will do this and they will think, I can solve the riddle. I can solve the mystery. Let me just tell you, people that I respect who know the Bible better than I, I have consulted with, I've contacted, I have researched, I've dug, and oh, there's lots of options and there's lots of people out there that have figured out the math. But I gotta be honest with you, none of them work. There are those that are out there, if you do the research, that'll try to tie it to sometime during the beginning or the middle of Solomon's reign when he started to turn away from God, which I don't know if you know this or not, Solomon did turn away from God in the end of his time as king. And they've done the math and they tie it to 586 BC, which is when the judgment on Jerusalem finished, and they added 390, subtracted 390 years backwards, and that ends up in the time during Solomon's reign. And so they're saying, this is the judgment on the northern kingdom because of their 390 years of sin that started at the time of Solomon. Does anybody see a problem with that solution? The math may work if you put it around 976 BC to, nine, sorry, to 586 BC, you'll get your 390 years, but there's a problem. The 390 years are supposed to represent whose sin? The northern kingdom of Israel. Weren't they judged? Because of their sin and removed from the land in seven by 722? Why are they doing the math to culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem when they've already been judged because of their sin in 722? Oh, others have figured it out that it ends up, that it will add up correctly to the time around uh, Josiah's 18th year of his reign. And they make the numbers all work out, but they don't work out. There are others that tie it to, there's three or four passages in the book of 2 Kings that shows that God says that he judges Judah, the southern kingdom, because of Manasseh's wickedness. I could show you three or four passages that clearly say that it's because of Manasseh's wickedness that they were, that they were removed from the, nation, uh, the land of Judah. But there's a problem. The math in Ezekiel 4 says it was 40 years. Does anybody know how long Manasseh's reign was? It was 55 years. Oh, yes, he did repent later on in his because he had been taken captive by the Babylonians and, and, and Syrians. And so he actually, then, but while he was there, he repented and God let him come back to the land. But again, the math doesn't work, folks. You don't know when it begins or when it ends to say that Ezekiel is representing the past sins. And there's another reason. Can we honestly say that the northern kingdom and southern kingdom sin was only 390 years? Actually, I'm going to show you from Scripture. They've been sinning all along. Go to Ezekiel chapter 20. As I wrote in my notes here, the honest answer is that there really is not a suitable and clear place to begin the iniquity of Israel and Judah because they have been in rebellion against God pretty much from day one. In Ezekiel chapter 20, look at verses 1 through 24. Listen to what the scripture says here so clearly. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, and on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord. And they sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know that 
the abominations of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that had searched out for them, uh, that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things that their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. By the way, while they were in the wilderness, very shortly after they got there, when Moses disappeared on the mountain, what did they do? They made the golden calf. They've been worshiping idols from, from day one. The stuff they were doing in Egypt, they just carried it right on. Then I said, I'll pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live, and whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt, and I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths and a sign between me and them that they might know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I'll pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. And I said to the, their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols, I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy that you may be a, they may be a sign between me and you and that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said, I'll pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. So according to this, when did the 390 years of their iniquity begin? <laughs> a lot longer than 390 years ago. So, folks, for those that are trying to take Ezekiel laying on his side and saying that he is laying on his side representing past sin of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, it doesn't work for lots of reasons. One, that would mean the northern kingdom was that much more wicked than the southern kingdom, and the Bible says the opposite is true. On top of that, where are you going to put the beginning and where are you going to put the end? It doesn't work. The math will not work, and the scripture clearly Excuse me, clearly says they've been in iniquity from day one. They're in iniquity in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt and said, hey, guys, don't do that anymore. They kept doing it. He had them wandering the wilderness, said, don't do that anymore. They kept doing it. He brought them into the promised land, said, don't do that anymore. And they kept doing it. You can't say this is when their iniquity began. There are some that say, well, it's when the nation rejected God as being their king and wanted an earthly king. 
they had been doing that long, long before. So there are others. The other option is that the 390 years and the 40 years refer to a prophesied time of future punishment, which personally is what I think the passage is pointing to for lots of reasons. Again, like I told you, the word translated iniquity and punishment as it is here in the ESV, iniquity and some of the other translations, is a Hebrew word that means the punishment because of iniquity. So I think that it's referring to something that's coming because of sin. All right. So I'm okay with the term punishment used here. Now, as with the past sins view, we got some problems with this view of it being future. Doesn't mean that that means it's not future. I'm just saying there are some issues with it that make it hard to figure out what it's referring to. I think I can show you that scripturally it's not referring to past sins. It's referring to past sins that are going to be judged in the future for this 390 years and 40 years. But to now figure out when the 390 years will begin and when they're going to end, or when the 40 years begins and when it's going to end, I think you're going to give yourself a bellyache because I don't believe this, that God has opened our eyes to it. You see, when does it begin and when does it end? Are the 40 years of Judah's punishment also, are they running concurrent with Israel 390 years? Or do they begin when the 390 years are completed? We don't know. That's not a yes. That, that's, a, that's actually not a yes answer. Sorry, Jerry. It's a good try, though. A lot of my questions are yeses. That's a, it's either or. It's either it, the 40 years happens at the same, the judgment of Judah and the 40 years happens during the 390 years of Israel, though their kingdom's future judgment, or they're after each other. We don't know. Interestingly enough, and don't try to figure anything out because of this, again, I was always a little leery as I put this study together that I would give you just enough information to make you go, I'm smarter, I can figure it out. But interestingly enough, if you add up 390 years and 40 years, what does that come up to? 430 years. Does, it, does anybody know that that's an interesting number? That's exactly it. Go to Exodus chapter 12. Duke got one right, folks. Let's all remember this day. All right. That's what <laughs> your table is taken care of. Go to Exodus chapter 12 and look at verses 40 and 41. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now again, does that help us solve the riddle? Nope. But it's an interesting thing that if you put them together, 390 and 40 adds up to the exact same number of years that they are in the land of Egypt. Now, remember, they weren't in slavery that entire time. They were in the land of Egypt for 430 years. Around 400 of those years, they were in slavery. But it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. Here's another question. If him laying on his side is representative of future punishment, 390 years for the northern kingdom, 40 years for the southern kingdom, how does the 70 years of Babylonian captivity tie into this prophecy? Is that included or is it added? You understand what I'm saying? In other words, do we actually have 500 years of future judgment? Because the scripture has been very clear that because of their rejecting God's law and his Sabbaths, he's going to give the land 70 years of rest. And there's going to be a Babylonian captivity. 70 years are completed for Babylon. 
So are that, the 70 years of Babylon, are they added to the 430 years? Or are they subtracted from the 430 years because they are a part of the future judgment? We don't know. There are some people that try to do the math and they'll say 430 years. Isn't that pretty much right about the length of time that there was silence between Malachi and Matthew? And actually Malachi made his prophecies the last time around 425 B.C. And it might have been that maybe the 400 years, 430 years is God's silence. And trust me, your brain goes, that's it. No, there are problems with that, too. There's problems with that, too. Again, there is no historical date that matches up to any of the different attempts at making the math work, even though some have tried. And trust me, you'll find people online. If you do research on this topic, you'll be amazed at all the different places that people have think they've figured it out. They'll start to do math from 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem, and they'll start to add 390 years, and then they'll try to add 40 here and this, that, and the other, and they'll look for significant dates that happened in the history of Israel. And folks, there really isn't anything. There really, really isn't anything. And part of the problem that makes it even a little more confusing, and I hate to do this to you, is the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Hebrew Old Testament, translate this passage in Ezekiel for 190 years, not 390 years. So I don't even know why the Greek translation has the different number. Oh, by the way, 190 years doesn't work either. <laughs> you won't be able to find any place that those years add up to a clear, here's where the judgment ended. But there is an interesting attempt out there. And it's interesting enough to share it with you. But I'm going to tell you now, even this one has issues. But it's interesting enough, and it has least amount of problems, but there's still problems with it. But it's interesting enough that I thought I might share it with you, because maybe. Yeah, well, some people... Some Bible scholars have taken something written in the passage we looked at last week in Leviticus 26. And they've added that into the equation. Go back with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Four times in Leviticus chapter 26, God says something that might play into this. Well, I have four, but if you count... Oh. Oh, you're talking the seven. Yes, four times he talks about the seven times. Yes. I thought you were saying my math was off. I'm like, no, I really looked. There's only four times. <laughs> All right. Leviticus 26. Look at, verses, look at verse 18. Remember, if we looked, at, we looked at this passage last week, and God, way, way back at the time of Moses, before they even went into the promised land, told him, if you do these things, here's what I'm going to do to you. All the stuff Ezekiel prophesied literally was going to happen. And in verse 18, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. In other words, if you don't listen to these judgments that I'm going to bring on you because of your disobedience, I'm going to multiply your judgment, what? Seven times. Go down to verse 21 and see if he doesn't repeat himself. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you, there it is again, sevenfold for your sins. Go down to verse 23. Verses 23 and 24. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Go down to verses 27 and 28. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, 
but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sin. So here God had said way, way back, and as we saw last week, Ezekiel is prophesying almost word for word Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, God told the nation of Israel, if you don't respond to these things that I'm going to do in judgment, if you don't respond to me breaking your supply of bread and, and, and having you eat your sons and daughters, which you're going to see later on in our study, not tonight, but later on in our study, is things that are going to be happening because of God's judgment. And all these things that he said is going to happen, the pestilence and the sword and all this stuff, you're going to have to eat your bread by measure and run out of water and all this stuff. If you don't respond appropriately to these judgments, he's then going to do what? Multiply it seven times. There are some people that say that means that actually the 390 years and the 40 years, because Israel didn't respond to this, by the way, if you know your history, by the time the end of the Babylonian captivity came with Cyrus the Great and he allowed the Jews to go out of Babylon back into the land, does anybody know what percentage of Jews actually went back into the land? It was like almost 5%. Most of them said, nah, we like it here in Babylon. We're good. And they stayed there. Folks, let me just say this to you. If you look at the nation of Israel's history, even after the judgment in 588 to 586 with the removal of the Jews from Jerusalem and the besieging of the city and the destruction of the city, the nation did not turn back to God. Actually, when Jesus shows up on the scene, they're going through the motions in their worship. But they're not turned back to God, are they? So there's a chance that actually the 390 years and the 40 years, you need to multiply that times seven. Now, what I'm going to share with you, I'm going to read to you how I wrote it in my notes so that you stick with me here. The math on what I'm about to share with you is just complicated enough to lose some of you. So I'm not going to do the math but not too complicated for those who would enjoy studying this further. But the short version is simply this. There are some who take the 430 years of future punishment that God is predicting, and they subtract the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, which leaves you how many years? 360 years. They multiply that number times seven, which gives you 2,500 and something years. And then they take that number of years and they understand that prophetic years are 360 days long, not 365 point whatever ours are, but they're 360 years. And so they take the 360 day years, 2,500 and something of them, and they then do the math to put them together with our years of 365 point whatever. And they also do the fact that there is no such thing as the year zero between B.C. and A.D. You know, there's B.C. 1 and A.D. 1. There's no year zero. And when you take the 360 times 7, match it up with how many days are in a year for us, the year is 1948. The year that the nation of Israel became a nation again. Don't get too excited. It may be that in this mystery of what Ezekiel's talking about, it may be 
The math works. That this is a picture of the nation of Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 after having been scattered to all the nations, which you'll see throughout the prophecies. Here's the problem. Here's what keeps me from saying, that's it. Is there judgment done in 1948? Is God done judging Israel? No. They still haven't turned back to him. He's still judging them. And the Bible says they're about to go through a time period called the time of Jacob's trouble, which is a judgment on the nations and Israel and purifying of his remnant. I can't say that's it. It's interesting. The honest answer, folks, and I'm telling you, if there's a, something that was here, I'd love to show it to you. And I've done as much work on anything that I've ever done on this. My answer is we don't know what the 390 years and the 40 years represent. I believe without question it's referring to a future judgment because of their sin. But to say this is what it's pointing to and this is when it's going to be over, I can't. I can't. So, let me save you a little bit of bellyache unless you're one of those engineers that loves this stuff. Just don't lose your faith in the process. <laughs> Leave it alone. Leave it alone. It's okay that we don't know stuff. You know why it's okay that we don't know stuff? Because Daniel himself, when given prophecies, went and said, God, when's this going to be? And he said, it's not for you to know. And if God tells Daniel, you don't need to know, Jim Johnson's okay with not knowing too. Although I will tell you for 15 hours, I wasn't okay with it. <laughs> but I have come to that place where I'm okay with it now. We don't know. I think what's, I think what's real important as we study and we get into these mysteries and we love trying to unravel them, God is saying, I haven't taken my hands off of Israel. And no. he has shown us through his word and through his prophetic word that I brought the restoration of the nation of Israel. And I have also brought the unity of Jerusalem. Keep your eye on Jerusalem. Oh, without question, something is going on. And, and, and by the way, does God did, does and did God have every opportunity to wipe them off the face of the earth throughout their history? The fact that they still exist is a miracle, folks, and it's because God made promises to the forefathers. And throughout, you're going to see it in Ezekiel later on. You're going to see it as we always go back to Jeremiah and Isaiah because they're prophesying about the same things all throughout it. As we saw last week at the end of our study, even in Leviticus 26, God says, in the very end, though, I'm going to bring them all back into the land and they're all going to worship me and they'll never be removed again. And it's going to be an amazing day that is still coming. And it's only because of God and his promise and his faithfulness to his word. So he's not done with Israel or any of us if we're his. Thank the Lord. But there are some things actually here in Ezekiel chapter 4 that I can actually talk to you about. So now that we've spent our time doing our introduction, let's get into our study. No, I'm kidding. Let's, let's take a look at some of the things that we can pull out of here because next time we get together in two weeks, I want to get into chapter 5. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 4 again, You'll see in verse 7, he was told, And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city, and behold, I'll place cords upon you so you can't turn from side to one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. All right, so he's told to bear his arm as he prophesies against this picture of the city of Jerusalem that he's looking at while he's laying on his side. Now, let me, let me say this to you. In the Bible, whenever someone bared their arm it meant that they were about to go to war. It was something a soldier did 
Kind of like you picture a couple guys wanting to get into a fight and they roll up their sleeves. Go to Isaiah chapter 52. Look at how the scripture talks about what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. Isaiah 52. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. It's going to be an awesome day. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Here in this passage, in this prophecy, it's when Jesus comes back to set up His kingdom on the earth, He bears His arm to fight against the nations who have all gathered to fight against Him. You remember from our study of Revelation, and we looked at Isaiah chapter 63, and who is this who comes from Edom with his garment stained in blood? And God said, it's I. I, the Lord, have done it all myself. No one was there to help me, and I trampled them in my anger and in my wrath. And here we see that God is going to bear his arm against the nations one day who have rejected his Messiah and turned against his people Israel. But here in this passage, Ezekiel is told to bear his arm toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he's representing God again, and God's going to actually be pouring out his anger and his wrath in warfare against the nation of Israel because of their sin. Now, go ahead. Which siege was this? Which one are you talking to? In chapter 4 of Ezekiel or Isaiah 52? Uh, Ezekiel 4.7. Ezekiel 4.7, this is the one talking about the one in 588 to 586 B.C., I believe. Because he's still, this is all tied to that siege works that he built to represent the, the, the judgment coming on Jerusalem. But there were three sieges. Oh, agreed. But at this point, this is the final one. Because this is, okay, I understand your question now. The, the, the sieges against Jerusalem began in 605. But the actual one in which they built the siege works that he's talking about here didn't begin until 588. This is 592 B.C. when he's prophesying this. Good question. Uh, so that was the one in which they actually built this, the ramps and the siege works, and they attacked it for two years and finally defeated it. Okay? All right. Now, also, God, as we just saw, would make it so Ezekiel couldn't turn from one side to the other until he had completed the total time of his siege, just as Jerusalem will not be able to escape what is coming to them. You could, he couldn't get out of it. God would make it so he couldn't get out of it. And he had to go through it all, representative of what they're going to go through. And Jerusalem and Israel will not escape what's coming to them. Also, Ezekiel was told to bake his bread out of very unpalatable things. Look at, look at what he says there in verse 9. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. By the way, any of you ladies that know anything about cooking, would this taste good? It's actually very, very unpalatable. Your husbands wouldn't eat it. <laughs> but let me tell you something interesting about God. He tells them specifically what to make his bread out of, because he doesn't have flour and all the stuff you'd make bread out of. But he's to take this other stuff and just kind of mix them together and grind them and make bread out of that. If any of you, and I'm not one, I've just done the research, okay? So this isn't coming from my personal experience. If any of you are one of these people that like to go to these health food stores, the GNCs and all that kind of stuff, you'll actually find something in there called Ezekiel's bread. Anybody ever heard of Ezekiel's bread? It doesn't taste good. But interestingly enough, when you put those things together that are here in Ezekiel chapter 4, it makes a protein that would keep you alive. God knows how our bodies are made, folks. He knows what we need. 
He knows how to sustain. And this is actually something that doesn't taste good, but it'll keep you alive. Now, he was also told to bake his bread, not only out of unpalatable things, he then was to cook his bread on what? Human dung. Now, this is a picture. Again, all this stuff is a picture of what is coming to Israel and the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. While they're under that siege, all the stuff that they would use for fuel to cook their food was going to be removed from them. They couldn't go out and gather it. So the only thing they would have to fuel the cooking of their food. Remember, if you go back to, uh, sorry, to uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, when uh, the prophet Elijah runs from uh, Jezebel, and he's told to go hide at the brook of the Kareth Ravine. And, and you remember, he also he has food there baked on a rock. You do a study, that's how they would bake their bread. They would take fuel, wood, and burn it, and then they would put it underneath a rock, and it would heat the rock up, and then they'd put their bread on the rock, and that's how they would bake their food. Well, at this point now, they're going to have it so bad that they're not going to have anything to use for fuel to heat the rock except human dung. And God says, I want you to make this bread, and only so much of it, from these ingredients, and as you're laying on your side, I want you to bake it on human dung. Ezekiel says, hang on for a second. I know your law. I know what your word says about human dung and how it was to be put outside the camp so that the place wouldn't be defiled. If I do that, I will become unclean and I've never eaten anything unclean. And all the things you said I wasn't allowed to do, I have not done. And God says, OK, I'll tell you what, you can use camel dung. <laughs> By the way, if your wife were to bake you some bread cooked with camel dung, don't you think a little bit of that smoke might affect the, the food? It's not going to taste good. Keep in mind, God is doing something here. We're going to close with that tonight as we get to the end of our study. But he's to do this, take ingredients that aren't palatable together, small amounts, just enough to keep him alive, measure his water, just enough to keep him alive. He's to lay on his side for a period of each day so that people are starting to realize, oh, wacky Ezekiel's at it again. And he's to cook his food, that little bit, on a rock fueled by um, camel's dung. He was also to measure out his water intake, like I said, each day as well, to show the severity of the coming famine and the lack of water soon coming to Jerusalem. Do you see how what he's doing is a picture of a future judgment? Not past, but it's a future. Go to Ezekiel chapter 4 again. Look at verses 16 and 17. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Well, I'm going to ask you a question tonight, folks. Why would God have the prophet Ezekiel do these strange, this strange thing? Why is God having him lay on one side for 390 days? Folks, that's a long time. Every day for 390 days and only eat this type of food. Folks, you're going to see later on, because of what God's wanting to show the nation of Israel, he tells the prophet Ezekiel, oh, by the way, your wife's going to die. And that's tied to what I want to do in your life to use you as an example to the nation of Israel. And God takes Ezekiel's wife as, and he's told, you're not even allowed to mourn. You can't shed a tear. You can't act like it bothers you. Oh, did you know that God had the prophet Isaiah walk naked for three years? 
Go with me real quick to Isaiah chapter 20. You say, are you serious? Well, let me show you. See what happens when you spend 15 hours on one passage of Scripture? You see all sorts of stuff. Look at Isaiah chapter 20. Look at verses 1 through 6. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist, take off your sandals from your feet, and he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say on, in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we had hoped and to whom we fled to help, for to help and to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? In other words, back when God was bringing these judgments and the nations were coming to attack the northern kingdom, their attitude was, we'll just run down to Egypt and just ask for their help. They'll protect us instead of turning to God. So God says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to let the Syrians go down and just capture the people of Egypt and Cushites that you're looking for, for, to for help. I'm going to have them be taken captive. Oh, and Isaiah, in order to kind of picture what's going to happen to the people they look for for protection, I want you to go around naked for three years with your buttocks exposed. And people are going to be noticing that, I'm pretty sure, when the prophet walks around like that. What was it a picture of? How afterwards... That was what happened to the people that the Jews were looking to, to for help. And God says, you putting your trust in them? These guys walking around naked, being taken away captive? Is that who you're looking to for help? And then the nation of Israel start to realize, uh-oh, who could we turn to? Isn't that sad? Who can we turn to, they said, when God had been there all along. So why? I could go on and on and show you others, but I think you get the idea. Why does God want Ezekiel to lay on his side and eat food cooked on poop and have Isaiah go naked? And why? why? Any idea? He's definitely making a point, but keep going. He wants them to repent, so they're being disobedient. Go ahead. He's trying to get their attention. His first, me first method is not to have the prophets go naked or lay on their side for over a year. His first, me first method is to say, listen to my word. I told you, just listen to my word. When we walk in disobedience to the Lord, guess what? He amps up the discipline. You parents have done the same thing. You tell your kids, don't do such and so. If they do it, you might be merciful and say, look, I told you, but I'm going to give you another chance. Don't do it. And if they do it, what are you going to do? You're going to up the discipline. You might spank their bottom. You might take away the car keys. You might, you're going to do something to get their attention. God said, all along, I've held out my hands to a disobedient people. He's using these prophets to do crazy stuff in our eyes. But you know what? Hopefully, it'll get someone's attention. Hopefully, it'll get someone's attention. And so, in closing tonight, I want to take you real quickly to three passages of Scripture. Go with me to Job chapter 33. Job. Job. 
Look at verses 14 through 30. Elihu is speaking to Job. And Job has made the statement that how can a man defend himself before God? How can a man speak with God? How can a man ever hear God? And Elihu, the one who speaks for God, shows up and he says this in chapter 33, verse 14. For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his, his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to him, to man, what is right for him, and he's merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth and let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him and he sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Elihu says, Job, God actually does talk a lot more than you think. And sometimes in dreams and visions of the night, but other times he brings physical suffering to get people's attention, to bring them back to him. Now, please don't hear that if you're suffering physically, that means you're not saved and God's trying to get you saved. As you know, Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And in his situation, it was something different. But let me just tell you, the Bible does say that some of our physical illnesses is tied to spiritual disobedience. The passage in the book of James chapter 5 when it says, If anyone is sick, let him go to the elders of the church and have them pray for him. And if he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. The physical healing sometimes is tied to getting right spiritually. There's nothing wrong with if you've got a physical ailment that the doctors are saying, we don't understand. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, is there some sin that you're trying to get my attention? And oh, by the way, you don't have to spend long trying to figure out because if there is, he'll show you. You'll know. If he's gotten you to the point where he's got you physically suffering, you already know what the sin is. You don't have to ask at that point. You know he's just gotten your attention. But for some, after you've done the sin checklist and you know there isn't any, sometimes God allows that just for his glory to be seen on how we respond to it. So don't assume that there are those who take things, truth that are scriptural truth, and they try to make it fit for everybody else. No, just, but let me just tell you, sometimes God does up the ante to get the attention of the world. Go to Psalm 32. Please don't hear that I'm saying, though, that everybody would, should be healed. That's not what the Bible teaches either. Psalm 32, look at verses 1 through 11. Something David wrote here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. You see again. Sometimes God has to up the ante to get our attention. Folks, listen closely to what I have to say tonight. I wish I could say that I see a massive revival and a turnaround for our nation. I don't. But that doesn't mean that we who are his people aren't still supposed to pray and seek the mercy of God. It's going to happen because he has said so in his word and we're deserving of it, and the judgment's already begun. We cannot stop what is coming to the United States of America, but we can delay it. We're supposed to be the salt of the earth. The salt slows its decay. And so, folks, I'm asking you in these days that we have, when we come to this election, I wish I could tell you who to vote for, but I tell you this much, I'm voting for the one I believe is going to be the closest to righteousness, even though both are unrighteous. I believe, I'm voting for the Supreme Court. I'm voting for who might be in office if a president doesn't make it. I'm looking for righteousness, and I'm trying to be used of God in any way I can to slow the decay in this country. Don't hear me when I say that it's too late for America, that I've given up on America. I haven't, because if I am still here, I'm supposed to be still salt and used of God to preach righteousness, preach truth. But let's be honest. Has God not tried to get our attention? Has God not, back in 2001, tried to get our attention? And we turned around, didn't we? Oh, no, just like we read earlier tonight. It was only in pretense, not in reality. Folks, let me just tell you, in the days that we have left, we're going to be like the Ezekiels living in a nation in a time of judgment. There will be righteous Daniels and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariahs. There's going to be Ezekiels and Jeremiahs and Isaiahs in the midst of all this. Be one of those people. God is trying to get our attention. And if the nation continues down the road, which I believe the scripture shows it will, the judgment is not going to be stopped. But pray that it's slowed. Pray that it's slowed. Next week, we're going to come back to chapter 5. And I'm going to show you how in chapter 5, some of the things that Ezekiel's told to do next, we already read about in what happened to the nation in 2 Kings, chapter 25. So we'll see you two weeks from tonight. Two weeks from tonight. Thanks for coming.